The garden, of course, is Gethsemane. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. The he that is in italics is an added by translators to help you understand, but he said, I am. And Judas, who betrayed them, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He, Jesus answered, I've told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Well, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. And by the way, we're told his name is Malchus, and we're told that Jesus picks up his ear and heals it in the other Gospels. Hi, uh, cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. I'm sorry, right here too. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And Father, may we drink the cup you've given us. May we fulfill the plan that you have for us today. May we learn what you have us to learn. May we receive what you have us to receive. May we give what you have us to give. Lord, people, we're, humans have to breathe in and breathe out. And Lord, we want to breathe in of your spirit and breathe out and let you do your work in our lives. It's fruitless for us to just have information in our heads. Lord, let it make the journey to our hearts, to our inner person, and let us become not only born again, but renewed day by day by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I did read this before. I did know Malchus was there. I just, you know, you're reading out loud, and I can't even do one thing at once by myself. So anyway, my wife's gone. All right. Jesus is praying along the way. That prayer that we read in John 17 is before he enters the garden, actually. And along the way, they come down Kidron Valley, Jerusalem. And this would, if that's north, for me, I'm thinking I can't do it for you. Anyway, on the eastern side of the city, there's a hillside goes down from the Temple Mount and over um, and the whole general area, and it goes down to the Kidron Valley, and then up to the Mount of Olives. And down at the bottom of the Kidron Valley is the brook Kidron. doesn't run all the time. Sometimes it's dry. But it's a small brook on the eastern side, and there's a great amount of history to this, of course, as everywhere in Israel. Number one, it's when Absalom, David's son who rebelled against him, called the men of Israel and stole their hearts, chased David out of Jerusalem. He fled over the brook of Kidron. And that's in 2 Samuel 15. So the true king of Israel, the one that God had chosen, has been rejected. The true king is rejected. And he goes across the Kidron Valley. Remember there was a guy named Shimei shouting and screaming at him as he's leaving. And so... 
Who knew what a picture that would be by David as he left under the duress to the son of David who would leave and go across that Kidron purposefully. Number two, idols were destroyed and tossed in there, broken up by several kings. One was Asa, and in Kings and Chronicles we have the story. Also later, Josiah burned the idols of Baal the people were worshiping when he brought a repentance to the land, and he smashed them and their altars and ground some of it to dust and poured that into the brook Kidron. Who knew that Jesus would destroy the power of the devil by the journey he was taking? Number three, very poignant, is that the Kidron being down on the eastern side at the bottom and the Temple Mount being up above, they actually had built drainage ditches. Historians and those who study these things tell us and excavate these things as well that there was a drainage ditch that would drain off blood when there was a lot of sacrifices at the Temple Mount. Obviously, they used blood to offer, but there was more blood than what would be used and there would be, especially when there's many lambs being slain and animals. And that would be a little drainage ditch would go down into the Kidron, the brook Kidron. Well, when would that happen? Well, first of all, you want the Kidron kind of running with water. And when does that happen? In the spring. In the spring. And when would they have many, many animals? Well, the way the Romans kept track of a census in Israel during Passover, <laughs> when so many people came in, you know, half a million people in the city that was normally so much smaller. We don't know exactly how many, but they, they estimated on this time, and this is just historians, we don't know for sure, 256,000 lambs brought into the city. And many of those lambs were sacrificed. The initial offering of them and the shedding of their blood would be at the Temple Mount and offering. So water's flowing, Passover's happening, and Jesus is crossing over. Jesus is passing over a spring, a brook of bloody water in all likelihood. He goes into this place called Gethsemane, the olive press, Gethsemane, olive press. You know, an olive press had a grinding stone on top. It had a, it was a structure that was kind of like a, uh, I don't know what term you use for this kind of shape, and it had holes in it where down at the bottom the, the oil of olives would drain out, and then they would collect it into containers as the olives on top are crushed. <laughs> what a perfect spot for the Lamb of God. He was crushed in the garden as he would go in. And it's not in the Gospel of John. It's in between when the soldiers come. He's gone into the garden and said, Can you not wait and pray with me for an hour and all that? And where he prays and sweats drops of blood, he's being crushed. This has all been happening in here. It's why we have four Gospels, not just John's. But John is very specific. And Jesus has come to a place that's his favorite spot. And I'm sure his disciples' favorite spot. Do you have a favorite place you go? Like maybe it's up in the mountains in the Adirondacks, and maybe you have a camp, maybe you have a place near your house, maybe you have a place in your basement. (laughs) But um, a favorite place where you go with friends. You know, for a lot of people who like to 
get outdoors. It's around a fire somewhere, you know, and you sit with your friends. And It's funny how you don't need entertainment when you're out with your friends or family sitting around a fire or some special place by a lake or et cetera. You know, a favorite place. Have you ever had a favorite place and then a tragedy happened in your favorite place and it shattered the beauty and the memories because the last thing that happened there was something terrible. Jesus willingly and purposefully goes to the place of the olive press and the olive trees and having you know, the blessing of having gone to Israel, there are trees there, olive trees, by the way, that they've probably partially because they've kept old olive trees for a lot of reasons. One of them is because they'll stay and they'll live. And, and, but part of it is, is because of the gospel story, they've kept it intact. And there's trees there, olive trees. The trunks are so wide and the many branches that are 2,000 years old, they believe. It's really incredible. There's a bunch of them in there. And I know the exact one he was standing next to. <laughs> Never worry about that stuff. It means nothing. All that mystery around places. The mystery is the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. Wherever he stood, wherever he walked, wherever he knelt, he interceded for you. And he, he's in this garden being crushed, and Jesus, he knew that this was the place to be, and so did Judas. He knew the place well because he had been there with all the questions and laughter and friendship that was built around the fire as they at night would sit at their favorite spot with Jesus. And Judas says, I know where to find him. I know where he'll be where it's quiet, where we can take him. And, and he comes to this well-known place that Jesus will certainly be. And Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. Don't make any mistake about this, no matter what the rock operas do with the story of Jesus. Uh, you know, he says in John chapter 6, Did I not choose you twelve, and one of you is a devil? And it says he meant Judas Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve that was going to betray him. In John six sixty four, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Jesus knew Judas well. Jesus knew Peter well. Jesus knows you well. He knows you perfectly. He knows what you're going through today. He knows what you're going to go through tomorrow. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what you're facing. And I do have a bulletin here, and the reason I want it it's because of the back of your bulletin. I'll just draw your attention. We have the whole chapter of Job 23, more of our light reading for the day. We're not going to read the whole chapter. But Job, you know his story. And even those of you who don't know his story well, you still know his story. Job suffered greatly, didn't understand why, had friends that came to comfort him, and they instead railed on him and got him to sin with his tongue as well. But he was not being judged or condemned, he was being purified. But in the middle of it, he says in verse about 8, Behold, I go forward, right in the middle there, but he's not there. Talking about the Lord and backward, but I, I, I can't perceive him. I can't see him in front of me. I can't see him behind me. And when he acts on the left, I, I cannot behold him. And when he, he turns on the right, I, I can't see him. Have you ever felt like Job? Maybe you haven't been through everything he's been through, the whole litany of things there, but you felt like you can't see God. Where is he? You think there's people today wondering that around the world? 
It's not the first time. It's not the last time. God is not afraid of the fact that people are going to say, where are you? Well, where is he? God understands. Job asks the very question, but where is he? I can't see him. And then somehow he grasps this, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Wow, when he's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Our faith does not get tested to destroy it. But it gets tested to prove that it has precious value. Now, some people use the word precious in a way that, like a lot of guys don't. I never look at a baby and say, oh, he's precious, but my wife would. But we do say, I could use some precious metals. (laughs) Guys are into that. (laughs) Okay, precious metals. Gold and silver, which are refined in the fire. And you know who tells us about our faith being much more precious than gold that perishes? A guy named Peter. Who He goes into the olive garden, place of olives crushing. And he gets pretty crushed here, too. We'll get to Peter. But if you want to understand the precious value of your faith and what God's doing with you, ask Job. I looked around everywhere to see, but I couldn't. But when he, he looked here, he looked there, he looked there, he looked there, he looked there. But it wasn't until he looked up. You know, We can see all around us a lot of stuff. It doesn't always help you just that you can see all the stuff. It helps you to look up. And God had to bring him through that. Ask Job, ask Peter, but not yet. Better ask Jesus, who embraced a shattering of this place of refuge, of his pure connection to the Father for us. I know that there are things in life that aren't fair. It is reasonable to say it's not fair if you work hard at a job and do more work than anybody and then they pass you over that it's not fair. It's reasonable to say that if you do certain things with a loving heart and a right attitude and then get hammered for it that it's not fair. I'm not going to say to you, yes, it is fair because you deserve so much worse. doesn't make that fair. I agree. But on the other side, aren't you glad God isn't fair to you? Because if God was totally fair to you, you'd get what Jesus got because that's what he took. He took the way to your sin. And that wasn't fair. We're right to thank God that we don't get what's fair. With Judas and the soldiers and the officers, they come, and this contingent that's called in New King James a detachment, from from what we learn is that it could be about 600, some people say even more, and they're ready to rumble. They don't know, I mean, are they thinking these 12 disciples are like the superheroes, the Marvel guys? But no, because they're not sure. They don't know. What kind of people are going to be gathered around Jesus? They, want, they don't want no trouble. They just want to take him. They know he's got disciples. They don't know who else is there. They go to, and this place of serenity turns to confusion and agony. But who's really in control? Jesus is totally in control. He's not confused. They don't catch him off guard. He catches them off guard. Who are you seeking? He steps forward. They don't say, you! Why not? Jesus steps forward. They've got lots of lanterns and torches. 
You. Who else is going to step forward and, and talk to them if he's the leader of his disciples, right? But they didn't recognize him. I don't get it. I thought Jesus glowed in the dark. Had a halo that glowed all the time. His robes kind of went all the time. I didn't think that. I'm being facetious because people portray him that way. This is very, very hard for us. You see, when Samuel was called by God to go anoint a king to replace Saul who had sinned, Saul who was head and shoulders taller than anybody, handsome like nobody's business, Mr. GQ, dark suit, red power tie, Every single one of them, man, <laughs> all the time, red power ties. Guys, if you need power in your life when you go in for to do it, just wear a red tie and everything will work out, apparently. People will listen to you. It's got to be red, because that's power. <laughs> the world we live in. Do you realize how twisted and ridiculous we are? More than we know. And I don't mean everybody else but me. I mean us, people. We're, we're, we get kind of ridiculous. And, and Samuel goes in, and the Lord says, the, king, the next king of Israel is one of this man's sons. Well, he parades his sons. The first one's Eliab. He's, he's tall. He's strong. He's also a GQ guy, man. He's, got, he's wearing the right clothes. He's got the right look. He's regal. This must be the the king. Nope, not him. And you know the story all the way through. Go, where's that little runt of yours? Go get him then. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, whose view is better? Whose view is better? Man's or God's? Okay, whose view of you is better. Yeah. Do you believe it? He sees the wickedness in you that nobody else sees. The people that don't like you or are mad at you, they don't even have a clue how bad you are. <laughs> if they really knew, they they wouldn't even hold back at all. The negative side of you. And God sees that. And yet he loves you. As it's been said to me, love sees more, and because love sees more, love sees less. God looks at you, and he loves you. And he looks at you through Jesus Christ. And his view of you is like no one else's view of you. And whose view matters? Whose view is more important? Yes, people affect your life outwardly. I get it. At some point, you start to choose how much they affect you inside. At some point, it has to kick in, and I know that's a journey, and I know there's things to be healed of, but part of that is hearing the truth. If you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I can't say I don't care what you think about me. I'd be lying. I do care. Okay? And so do you care about what people think about you. That's normal. It's part of life. All you have to do to be right and free is to care more what God thinks of you. Yes, I care what you think of me, but I care more about what God thinks of me. And that is what stabilizes my life and my heart and my ability to achieve 
in the right sense, not out of frustration and proving to other people that I'm not what they think, I'm better than they think, and all that other nonsense, and I don't need a red power tie. I'm on to that today. Okay. So Jesus is not confused. He's, there's no, Isaiah tells us there's nothing about him physically that would make you go, that must be Jesus. Look how he floats on the ground. Look at his face. Look at his pure complexion. His nose is perfect. His lips are perfect. His eyes are perfect. I'm sure if you looked into Jesus' eyes, you saw, like you do in another person's eyes, depth. You know what I mean? Or sensitivity. Okay. But he didn't look like the Son of God. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Why do you let these guys go? You said you wanted me here. They fall backwards. Was it supernatural? Sure it was. But you know, sometimes supernatural can be supernaturally natural. There's a bunch of guys there. There's rocks all over in Israel. He speaks powerfully. I'm not denying the supernatural of it. But I don't know that they all went as a whole group. I am. (laughs) I don't know that happened. I don't know. And we won't make a big deal about it because, but I know he said, I am, just as God said to Moses, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And the reason I have this view that it was supernaturally natural is because when men try to overcome and control Jesus, they stumble over themselves. And that's really the point. Proverbs 26 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever rolls a stone, the stone will roll back on him. And what you have happening is supernaturally, yet natural events. They're taken by surprise, they're shocked, the Holy Spirit moves them, yeah, sure. But they also are so engaged in their spot, they kind of, as they, as they go backwards under God's power, they also stumble because they're just men. That would be my take. None of that matters. Jesus um, is loved by Peter. Peter loves Jesus passionately. He shows great courage here, if not good swordsmanship. And he doesn't have good swordsmanship. Uh, one guy says that if you look at me, look at my right ear. Okay, If you've got a sword in your right hand, how could you cross my face without hitting me and get my ear? I'd have to be turned this way, maybe. I was turned. Or I could be facing the other way, and then you could get my right ear easy. Peter wasn't going. By the way, John tells us it's Peter. Matthew's much more gracious. Matthew, who wasn't Peter's best friend, you know, but met him through the gospel and they became close brethren, but just says one of them struck him with a sword. But John, who him and Peter are buds, yeah, it was Peter. Come on. (laughs) Peter did it. (laughs) Just to fill you in on that. But um, uh, Peter was obviously looking to kill the guy, just whichever way the guy was facing. Peter was trying to hit him. Now, they had been with Jesus. Jesus had been praying on his knees with sweat drops of blood. And, and he, they fell asleep, and he woke him and said, Hey, our, betray- our betrayers are here, and they get up suddenly, and now this moment happens. You could attribute it to Peter just waking up and being confused. You could attribute it that he's a fisherman, not a swordsman. But the real point is, why, did he, why was he so bad? Because he was in the flesh. What, if you're not familiar with that term, it means he was in the human nature trying to accomplish something. He was aimed to kill and ready to die. He aimed to kill. What if he had struck that guy across the neck, dropped the guy? 
how soon would 600 soldiers possibly wipe out all the rest of the guys? You know how that goes. Um, like, okay, we're fighting. We're ready. <laughs> Grab Jesus, kill the rest of them. But what you find out in, in the other Gospels is that Jesus picks up the ear and heals it. hits the ear. Not everybody knows what's going on, I'm sure. But, it's, you know, Jesus heals him. Because Peter is passionate. Peter is aiming to kill and ready to die because he knows if he does this, he knows that he's going to likely die right then and there. But Jesus aimed to save and to heal. So being zealous for Jesus without knowledge, the Bible talks about having a zeal without knowledge. The Jewish people had this excitement and energy, and yet without understanding God's ways, became ruthless and self-righteous and had a zeal but not according to knowledge. Peter exhibits that same kind of thing operating under his own strength. And, you know, we said Jesus knows us better than ourselves. Ask Peter. His world is shattering around him, right in front of him. I mean, he's given his whole life to this mission, to Jesus. And now it's being just torn apart by these guys coming. And Jesus has told Peter, but Peter, he didn't have ears to hear yet, did he? He couldn't hear Jesus. I'll die for you. No, Peter, you'll deny that you even know me. You know. And, and, and Peter strikes out, and his, his world is shattering. He lashes out. When your world is shattering, when things are going wrong, there's kind of two ways most people go. Most, pe- most people withdraw if it's overwhelming. Not most people. Some people withdraw. <laughs> and some people lash out you know try you're, you're just freaking out trying to hold the ground you know it's like an earthquake is taking everything away and you're grabbing things to not let them go and it's kind of humanly understandable but jesus has something better when 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 things are happening to not be what we call in the flesh to not let your nature take over but let god's spirit be in control is that easy no, <laughs> no it's not easy is that if it was easy, you know, it wouldn't be valuable, really. If It, it would just be, a, it's, it's hard, and yet there's a place where God teaches you, and he's teaching us all. So we're, Peter's going through a lot, and, and Jesus told him, but he couldn't hear it. And confusion in Peter leads to fear and then denial. He, he knew how to die for Jesus in the flesh, humanly. In the human, he knew how to die for Jesus. But in the spirit, not yet. Have you been able to distinguish in your life what it means to die in the spirit for the Lord versus die in the flesh? There is a difference. There is self-sacrifice. Colossians talks about self-will worship where you force yourself to do things that you think are right, even if they're costly to you. But you're not necessarily having a form of godliness, but not actually personally yielding to the Lord. And the church, here's the problem in the church. Can I give you a perfect example, a perfect uh, litmus test to take? I can't. Somebody will say they can, and they'll write a book with 80 chapters and of one chapter, really, but they make it 80 chapters long. But the bottom line, it, it, it's, it, 
I can't give you an exact thing about what it means to be in the spirit doing it versus self-willed in the flesh. Um, but I know that God would lead us to freedom, to letting go, to letting him do the work, to trusting him in that work. If it's out of anxiety and tension and gritting your teeth, at some point it has to become out of the peace and the love of Jesus Christ. And so he couldn't hear it right now. He wasn't in the spirit yet. Oh, I was starting to say something. I knew in the back of my mind saying, you're not saying what you wanted to say. You know how that happens to you too? Then why are you judging me? Okay, so he says, see if you're listening, the church can reward because it's an organization and a structure and you look for people that will do. So you find people that will do, you know, you're trying to organize an event. Somebody says, I'll offer, I'll help, I'll do it's so easy to get into the do, 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 and, 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 and to get all this activity going. And what do we do if we don't have any activity? Huh? We might have to just wait on the Lord. Oh, we can't do that. What will people think if we just wait on the Lord? We have to accomplish. We have to get stuff done. Do you understand what I'm saying? And leaders in situations, not just pastors, in any situation, somebody who's trying to get something done starts to push buttons. And people who easily get their buttons pushed to do, do what they're not supposed to do. Now, somewhere along the line, it's good to just get up and serve. If you've been waiting to do something for the Lord, and you constantly hear about stuff, well, that's not for me, that's not for me, that's not for me, that's not for me. How about just serving is for you? <laughs> that's another side. How do, you, how do you, Rick, give us the perfect balance? Uh, I'll refer you to the perfect balancer, Jesus Christ, our Savior, through the Holy Spirit. And prayer. So at any rate, uh, Peter's world's shattering. He can't do it. Put away your sword, and on the front of your bulletin, we read Matthew where he also says, Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now I'm thinking, how many angels would it take to stop 600 guys? About one, with a broken wing. <laughs> in, in, uh, in the books of Kings and Chronicles, one angel wiped out 185,000, chased away other thousands upon thousands. In Revelation, an angel stands on the water and the sea and says, time will be no more and brings an end to things as they are. And there's this change, a dramatic change. It's one angel. And it's an unnamed angel. It's not Gabriel or Michael. Just, just an, give me an angel over here. That's all I got. Would you like, you know, Augusto? No, just, I don't care. Just give me an angel. Anyone will do because the angel's power is God's power through them. They're ministering spirits. There's a lot of them because a legion, a Roman legion, was 6,000. So 6 times 12, 72, right? 72,000. Somebody did it for me last service. That's how I knew. Had all week to add it up, but I forgot to do it. So anyway, six times, you know, in other words, limitless supply of power is available to me. If I want to stop this, I can stop this. This is where some of us have a real problem with God. 
if I want to stop this, it doesn't mean he doesn't care that he doesn't stop it. So if God wanted to stop it, he would, and bad things are happening to me, and God's not stopping it, so he must not love me or care about me. Well, maybe God sees more than you see. Maybe that's why faith is so important, because it means trusting God for what you can't see. If you could figure this all out by your mind, will, and emotion and just run with it, you wouldn't really need God. It would be like create a God. He lets you go, and you just do your thing. But that isn't what he wants. He wants you connected to him through the dark and through the storm. He wants you to connected to him. I didn't make it up. This isn't the Rick Cohen plan of salvation. I would have planned something different that would be conducive to what would make me relax, enjoy life, and not have to deal with anything. Wouldn't you? But I don't have that option. And I'm glad because I'm also not God and can't provide. The challenges, because they're real, bring you to the God who is even more real. And people who promise you there's no challenges and difficulties and dark days are selling you something that cannot sustain you because you have to face those things in order to find God. In the deeper, I looked to my left, to my right, in front of me and behind me, I couldn't see him. But when I am tried, I will be come forth as gold. So he has angels available to him. Now, as we're finishing and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion, and that's up to you whether you take it or or not. Uh, If you understand it and you realize what communion means, then you're free to take it. We don't uh, demand it of you, nor do we withhold it from you. But Jesus says, put away your sword. Could, could I not call for all the strength I need? Would he not have if he could speak and they fall back? Could he not just do it himself? Step out of just the human? Just put, peel back, the, peel back the, the human and just let the glory shine like Superman's, you know, You know, put away your sword. All authority in Matthew 28 has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's interesting. Power. Rome had it. Rome had power. They ruled the earth that Jesus lived in. The Sanhedrin had it. They were ever able to manipulate Pilate and the Romans to do what they wanted them to do, kind of. The Sanhedrin ruled over the people. The soldiers had it. They had the clubs, and they could take people a prisoner. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, who was the high priest, the father of that was now out, and that, we'll get to that later, uh, they had power. Pilate and Herod, procurator and, uh, and a king, they had power. So how real is all this power that's around, all these power brokers? Well, if they really have power, what would they have power to do? They would have po- if they really had power, if they really had power, they would have power to get exactly what they want. Right? What's the point of having power if you can't get what you want? Am I right? Power to get what you want. What you really want. 
So who got what they really wanted? Did the Sanhedrin get what they really wanted? Well, they got Jesus crucified. How did that work out? Did they get what they really wanted? Did that stop all the things they were trying to fight? Did they put themselves on top again? Did everything work out swimmingly? Did Rome get what it did? Pilate get what he really wanted? I wash my hands of this. Everything will just work out now. And get us go back to my breakfast. Did Herod get what he wanted? You know, the only person who got what they really wanted is Jesus. The only person who got what he really wanted out of the whole deal is the one who ordained it all to happen so that you would get what you really need so that I would get what I really need. All power is given to me in heaven and earth. Jesus was submitted as the Son of Man, came to earth to die for our sins. You know the story of how he is in a position willingly placed there to be in a submitted role. So the power and authority as a man had to be given to him, but it's the power and authority he always had with the Father before the world began, he said. And he's right. And Jesus got exactly what he wanted. And that means he got you. He got you. Don't you love him? You can't, you can't make this up. The gospel is not too good to be true. It's too good to not be true. Because it focuses us on the fact that without him we're lost. And how would we ever find him on our own? How would we ever understand him on our own? I mean, I'm a Christian I've been a Christian for 45 years. And I'm only 47. And I don't, I I still don't understand him. I don't understand how he, the way he sees me and forgives me and and is able to wash away my sin. I I understand, I can preach the gospel, but I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand it in the, de- in the deepest sense. But that's why it's so fresh all the time is because I had a pastor said that, his, that he had a group of leaders in his church that wanted him to make sure he came up with something fresh every week and that he didn't um, rely on other people's stuff. But, you know, he could study some history, but they were very, very intense about him having something fresh. He was kind of in a quandary, and I said to him, I said, thought about it with him, and I said, you know, the freshness for me isn't some new insight that I have about the gospel. The freshness for me is that this is God's word, and it's true, and I believe it, and it's ministering to me right now. I don't have to come up with anything for you. If this isn't good enough for you, you're hopeless. Now, I'm not saying that, that it's not good enough for you. It is, but I'm trying to shake any of you. Well, this isn't good enough for me. That's because your heart is blocked to it, and God wants to open the eyes of your understanding to his word, not some preacher's ability to speak. It's not that. 
It's when you get who he is for you. And I, I don't get it, but I do get it. And that's what gets me psyched or whatever. Excited, blessed, amazed, in tears. Because he's real and he's alive and he comes to me and he forgives me again and again and again and again. And I'm never getting tired of it. And the day I get tired of it means there's something wrong with me that I've started to have my eyes turn towards something else or my ears itch for something else besides the real, true Son of God. And it happens all the time, friends. It's going all over the place. Don't be that way. Choose different. If you have to cry out to God, why don't I get it? Then cry out, why don't I get it? But don't go somewhere else for the answer. Don't open new boxes of stuff. The gospel is your hope. The gospel is your salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is your lifeblood. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And I'm not mad at you. I'm psyched. <laughs> because I remembered suddenly this conversation. I thought, your guys are so off. Bring us something fresh. Intrigue us. Amaze us. Baloney. Lifting up men and their ability above the God who made you. I'm never going to reach that level, my friend. I'm never going to be that good. Okay? And neither are you. (laughs) That's not it. He's that good. He's that good. And so he says to Peter, you don't have to defend me, Peter. I'm getting exactly what I want. I want you. I want you in the spirit, not in the flesh. I don't need you in the flesh, but I will use you in the spirit. You're mine, and I'm going to pay for you. Put away your sword. Put away your sword. Are you striving Are you fighting? Have you got a sword in your hand? Don't you wish the whole earth, don't you wish the Islamic um, radicals would put away their swords? But you know, I do too, by the way. (laughs) And and it's not that I don't think governments have to make decisions, all of that realm. But that's not the realm we're talking about right now, what the government should do. What we're talking about right here, right now, amongst us, is about your sword and my sword. Because you know what? There's a lot of bloody ears getting cut off by people who have good intentions, but are, you know, when you're in the flesh, in the human, and you really want to help God out, you can, you can, I've, I've hurt, a few, I've cut off a few ears with my tongue. I sure have. I hope I'm not doing that today. Because I, I'm, I've been, I've done it. Maybe you've done it too. And, and I've picked up a sword of self-defense that because my world is starting to kind of get shaky and, and the only thing I know to do is pull out a sword. But today we know something different. Today, right this minute, you can't fix the past and I can't fix your future. I don't have any power for that, but the power of the gospel is that right now, he's the God of right now. I'll let him apply it to your life as you come to the table. What sword? It may not apply to you today, but I bet somebody it does. 
what sword are you holding on to so tightly you can't even pry your fingers off of it and you need to just drop your sword? And Jesus said, put your sword away. I'll win victory for you over evil by the drinking the cup of wrath because that's what that cup was for him, the cup of wrath. But in Passover, the third cup, after the supper, he took the cup, Luke 22, is the cup of redemption. That's the cup. The cup of wrath to him is the cup of redemption and salvation to me. I'm going to take the cup of wrath, Rick. You take the cup of redemption. So you take your hands off that sword and you commune with me. Joel, guys, come up. I'm going to say a prayer for the moment. And